I almost hate to do this passage. We are at the end of the 17th Canto of Inferno, and we have come to a passage that is so imaginatively overwhelming, such a flight of the imagination I almost hate to touch it. I thought about just recording this episode as the passage and leaving it alone because what happens here as Garion backs off the cliff with our pilgrim and his guide on Garion's back, it's something that no one could have ever imagined. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. We're slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We're at the end of the 17th canto of Inferno. We're at lines 100 through 134, and we have come to the dead middle of Inferno and a passage of supreme imaginative effort. As a skiff backs up from its mooring little by little, so did this thing. And when he felt fully unfettered, he came about until his tail was where his chest had been, turning and twisting it like an eel as he gathered the air to himself with his arms. I don't think Phaeton felt any bigger fear when he let go of his reins so that the sky got scorched, as it still is. Nor was poor Icarus more scared when he felt those feathers molting off his back, the wax melting, hearing his father yell up to him, Hey, wrong way! But that's how I felt when I saw that I was in the air, nothing visible all around me other than the beast itself. It went on swimming slowly, slowly. It wheeled and descended, although I wouldn't know it, except for the wind on my face from down below. At this point, I heard the waterfall off to my right, making a horrible roar beneath us. So I leaned out and looked down into the pit. I was even more terrified of falling because I saw the fires and heard the wailing. I hunched down even tighter, shaking all over. Then I saw what I hadn't really been able to see before. As we descended, a huge swath of evil got closer and closer to us, like a falcon that's been aloft too long and hasn't seen lure or prey makes the falconer say, ah, you're coming down. And so through a hundred circles, it wearily comes on down to the place it left to alight far away from its master, all embittered and enraged. In just this way, Garion set us down on the ground, and having gotten rid of our very persons at the very foot of the rocky escarpment, he shot away like the knock of an arrow let from the bow. That passage is simply astounding. You have most likely been in an airplane. You have looked down at the little lights of towns twinkling below you. You've looked down at long expanses of the prairie or of farmland below you or cities below you. 
This is something Dante the Poet, <laughs> and even Dante the Pilgrim, but that's another matter. Dante the Poet has never done, and yet this passage describes in rather amazing detail the very feeling of flying on the back of Garion and the terror that it would inspire. So let's look at it bit by bit. As a skiff, the passage starts, backs up from its mooring little by little. So Garion, this boat, is pulling back. We want to talk about this in a minute, the many things that Garion is compared to. But in this case, it's a skiff or a small boat. And when it backs up out of its mooring little by little, so did this thing. And when he felt fully unfettered, he came about until his tail was where his chest had been. So he turns around in the air so that now his head's facing out, turning and twisting his tail like an eel as he gathered the air to himself with his arms. There's so many references to tails, but in this entire canto, but we're going to save it to the very end of this passage to talk about it there. But again, <laughs> there's more tail bit. We have gotten this monster backed up off a cliff turned around and now ready to descend and the descent is described as gathering air to himself with his arms so dante who has never flown is imagining swimming as the equivalent of flying there's a fabulous emily dickinson poem about a bird came down the walk that ends exactly this same way a bird came down the walk he did not know i saw he bit an angle worm in have and ate the fellow raw and this poem goes on forward until finally at the end of it butterflies off banks of noon leap plashless as they swim and the whole idea here is that air is to butterflies and birds the way water is to you and me that is they swim in it they leap plashless into light and swim her poem's gorgeous this is terrifying as it would be for anyone in 1310 to imagine being on the back of something and suddenly out over the void. There's a large question here, and it's not a question that I can answer for you. We can take it as a given that there's a big drop between the seventh and the eighth circle, a giant cliff, the waterfall's going over it, you know, this big cliff thing that they cannot climb down. It's way too high. I always imagine angel falls in Venezuela. But, you know, this giant cliff with this waterfall coming down off the edge of it. And we can take it as a given. Okay, there it is. And that's how it exists. But it is an interpretive question that you can ask. Why does there need to be a cliff between the seventh and eighth circles. There's a scree-filled slope down from the sixth to the seventh circle. Remember that? There's this scree-filled slope that they descend when they come to the violent the first time, and the Minotaur is standing on that slope. So, you know, that there's a downslope there, and we've been walking down down all the way since limbo we've been walking in a downward fashion but why suddenly the need for this giant cliff such a stark and stern demarcation is it because the demarcation between violence and fraud is so 
dramatic that we need this great division, this great escarpment, this great cliff to divide them apart? Is the poet trying to say to us, okay, we have finally come to the major division in the poem? In the same way that this cliff exists, this is the moment in which the poem in some way divides itself or splits in half. And we have come to the middle of the poem. And when we get to Canto 18, I'm going to argue that in fact the poem does split in half, Inferno as the poem. Inferno does split in half at this point. But there may be even more thematics and more psychology involved in the need for a cliff at this point. Listen, the poet could make anything up. This is imaginative literature. The poet could create anything. There could be, I don't know, they could have to go over the waterfall in a boat. There could be a series of rapids that they have to go down like the Grand Canyon. There could be any way to divide these two circles from each other. Why divide it with a cliff? Why settle there? And surely, again, there are the thematic, structural, and even psychological reasons why there's a cliff here. I'm not going to come to any of those reasons necessarily right now. I'm just going to pass on in the passage to the two big images. After the Garion backs off from the cliff and writes itself, turns itself around so it's ready to go down, we get these two different images. I don't think, the poem says, Phaeton felt any bigger fear when he let go of his reins so that the sky got scorched as it still is. Phaeton, remember, took the reins from the sun god and wanted to drive the chariot of the sun across the sky. Phaeton got scared when he saw the constellation Scorpio. Remember, Garion has a scorpion's tail. And Phaeton let go of the reins. And so the sun's horses and the chariot of the sun went out of control and scraped all the way across the sky, thereby creating the Milky Way or what we see now as the Milky Way. And so this is the first moment of fear, and it is a fear of falling. In the end, he falls out of the chariot and is killed when he lets go of the reins. The second image is, again, a fall, nor was poor Icarus. Morse remember Icarus? His father made him the wings so that he could fly, and Daedalus makes the, the wings that allow Icarus to fly. And we get this beautiful passage again where to, uh, the second image here of Icarus with the feathers molting off his back, the wax melting. These are two really beautiful images of tragic classical figures who fall out of the sky, Phaeton and Icarus, and they express the fear that exists here in this moment in which Garion backs off the cliff and starts to fly. Both of these images are from Ovid, written from uh, Book 1 of Ovid, line 747 through Book 2, 322, and then Icarus in Ovid Book Eight line 183 through 259. And it's interesting that there are two Ovidian references here because the Ovidian references, and we'll want to talk much more about this in the future, the Ovidian references, the references to Ovid's metamorphoses, are going to become thicker in the eighth circle. After all, metamorphosis is a kind of fraudulent behavior. But it's interesting that here what we get pick up are two examples, not out of Virgil or Lucan or other writers, but we pick up Ovid and we are anticipating, if you know the if you know the Inferno and the Comedy's Hole, we're anticipating the growth of Ovid as a source material for some of the some of the bits that are ahead. But they are both 
tragic figures. They are both about overreach, about pushing too far. Icarus has got his wings. He could fly away, but instead he overreaches and flies toward the sun. Phaeton, it's just he shouldn't have his dad's chariot and be driving the sun across the sky. He's too inexperienced to do it. They're both tragic examples of overreach that that end up in a fatal fall. This passage is not that. This passage in the dead center of comedy is a minor comedic ending. When, in fact, the previous examples, Icarus and Phaeton, fell and killed themselves, here, our pilgrim gets down safely. And at the very center of Inferno, we have a slightly comedic ending, a kind of minor comedic ending, anticipating the comedic happy ending of the entire poem itself. But it's interesting that the classical types teach you fear, that the classical images here teach the poet fear, to fear overreach, to fear flying. And we're at a place in which the poet is starting to outrun his classical examples, his classical background. And so while there may be fear involved in outrunning your classical forebearers and the classical stories may teach you the tragedy of overreach, our poet is just going to take it on an overreach. Just take it on and describe what, in fact, few have ever described. That is the descent from above on the back of something as it flies, which seems so hackneyed to us now, but is not hackneyed in 1312, 1315, 1317, 1320, passing on in the passage. And that's how I felt when I saw that I was in the air. I felt like these tragic figures that fell. I felt the weight of the classical example of what happens to people who overreach. Nothing visible all around me other than the beast itself. It went on swimming slowly, slowly. It wheeled and descended, although I would know it, except for the wind on my face from down below. Imagine the imaginative act it takes to make this point. At this moment, I heard the waterfall off to my right, making a horrible roar beneath us. So I leaned out and looked down into the pit, leaned over the edge of Garion and looked. I was even more terrified of falling because I saw the fires and heard the wailing. I hunched down even tighter, shaking all over. Then I saw what I hadn't really been able to see before. As we descended, a huge swath of evil got closer and closer to us. This is a tour de force. I have nothing else to say about this except I stand utterly agog and agog that a writer in the 1300s could see this and understand this notion of coming down and seeing the bottom, the earth here, or the eighth circle of hell, rise up toward him. Like a falcon that's been aloft too long and hasn't seen lure or prey, makes the falcon say, aha, you're coming down. And so through a hundred circles, it really comes on down to the place it left to alight far away from master, all embittered and enraged. This begins the falconry program that is going to become more intense 
as comedy moves forward. But the last time we saw a Falcon was Inferno, Canto 3, line 117, when the damned rush forward to get in Karen's boat to cross Acheron. That's a big border. Karen and his boat and the entrance into hell itself, giant border. And that's the last time we've heard about Falcons. This time, it's not so much the Falcon coming back to the lure. This time, the Falcon, Garion, is recalcitrant. It says, away from his matter, all embittered and enraged because this thing's been having to be aloft. It hasn't seen the lure, which would be the food that draws it back, or prey to catch. So, you know, what's in it for Garion? What's in it for this Falcon? So the Falcon comes down and, yeah, it returns to its master, but it comes down a long way off, all embittered and enraged. Garion is clearly a dangerous creature like this falcon that is irritated that it had to do all of this for nothing. And it comes down and sets them down at the bottom to what I say is this minor comedic ending to the canto. And just this way, Garion set us down on the ground and having gotten rid of our very persons at the very foot of the rocky escarpment, he shot away like the knock of an arrow let from the bow. You know, that little notch at the back, the knock, the little notch at the back of the arrow where the feathers are to help it get, get have better aerodynamics. And you should note that word in the Florentine for knock, coca, is very close to coda and very close to words for tail. The, the Basically, the Canto 17 opens with the word for tail, coda, and ends with coca. Let's talk about Garion for a minute. Carrion is described as a swimmer swimming, a skiff backing out of its mooring, a beaver dangling its tail in the water. He's described as a descending, if recalcitrant, falcon. Earlier, Virgil referred to him as a staircase. It's from staircases like these that we go down. And then he's described as an arrow shot from a bow. That's a lot of of various imagery to describe this creature. And it should bring to mind how strange this creature actually is. To have to use so many similes and metaphors, swimmers, skiffs, beavers, staircases, falcons, arrows, or the knock in an arrow. I mean, all of this is very uh, wide-ranging. So we can see the poet pulling out all the stops. Many, many different ways to describe this creature. So many, in fact, that the creature becomes a little opaque. When I went down that list just now for you, Garion actually probably got a little more opaque and fuzzy for you instead of more and more defined. The poet seems to be pulling out all the poetic stops possible to try to explain what this thing is that he's made up and not only what he's made up but the flight that he has to make up out of whole cloth to describe how it looks to come down from a height on the back of something or flying down on something here's what i think if usury is a sin against art which is the child of nature we were told this in canto 11 then the poet is using all of the natural metaphors he can gather to explain this unnatural moment 
of flying. There is nothing quite like this description of flying down. It is fully, especially to a medieval imagination, unnatural. And the poet has called forth as many natural metaphors as possible to explain this thing because remember, art is the child of nature, Canto 11, and nature is the child of God. And so the poet is trying not to sin against art in the way that the usurers do. The poet is trying to explain this thing made up out of whole cloth, the notion of flight, with as many natural metaphors as he can. Or (laughs) is the poet counterfeiting nature with this scene and thus himself sinning? against art in the same way the usurers do. Is that why the usurers are in the middle of this scene? Look, it doesn't have to be written this way. They could come into the 17th canto. They could see the usurers sitting over there. Dante, the pilgrim, could wander over there and look at them and see their money bags. He could wander back. Garion could then breach on the edge of the cliff. Virgil could walk away to Garion, have his little negotiation, come back, say, get on board. They get on board. They fly down. But that's not how the canto's written. Instead, Garion, the beast of fraud, breaches. Virgil has his negotiation. Dante goes away and the users are set down in the center of the canto with the Garion scenes parenthetically around it. The pilgrim comes back, Virgil's already astride, and off they go down. Is there an ironic, hmm, what am I saying, an ironic take on counterfeiting nature here with this unnatural scene of flying? And so in the middle of this are these sinners against art, which is the child of nature? Is that what's going on? Is the pilgrim more steady with the usurers because the poet there is on sure ground? Is that why the pilgrim is not afraid when he walks over to the usurers? Because there the poet is on sure ground. But when the pilgrim comes back here, the pilgrim is terrified because this is the point in which the poet must marshal all of his faculties in order to pull this off and get off a cliff's edge and fly down. I realize that I'm hammering on this, but I think it bears out in the canto. It bears The canto bears under the weight of all this hammering. And I think that it is strange enough and oddly constructed enough that is calling for us to try to figure it out, like a little puzzle set down right in the center of Inferno at a place where we're told we're looking at those who have sinned against art. At this place, the art of the poem, the gorgeousness, the feathers molting off Icarus's back, the mat of wax melting, his father calling up, hey, you're going the wrong way. The gorgeousness of that poetry were set down here into a heightened aesthetic experience amongst those who sin against art. That can't be a mistake that the poet names the work comedy and then we find those who sin against art. Is the poet hedging his bets and marshalling all the natural metaphors he can to keep from sinning against art? Or is he winking at us behind the scenes? I just have a lot of questions, but I do have one more answer. We may have surpassed Virgil at the gates of Dis. Remember when I said we get to the gates of Dis and we pass through them. And in the Aeneid, Aeneas actually does not 
pass through the gates of Dis, but goes along beside them and doesn't pass in to lower hell. So we have surpassed Virgil. We have surpassed Virgil's understanding of hell. We have gone through the gates of Dis, seen the heretics, and now seen the violent for a very long time. But we have not dismissed Virgil because Virgil controls Garion's descent. Remember, Virgil is the one in the last passage who says to sin slowly and in circles, but we know that Garion doesn't have to fly this way. He shoots up like an arrow let from a bow at the end of the canto. So Virgil is clearly in control of Garion's descent because he can apparently, as I say, fly straight as an arrow, the Garion can, anytime he wants. Virgil still holds the newly emboldened poet's faith in his hands. It may be that the poet is finding out how to go beyond Virgil in his understanding, A, of the human condition, and B, of hell itself. And yet at the same time, this classical poet, classical poetry itself, holds the fate of our pilgrim and maybe our poet in his hands. We shouldn't dismiss Virgil at this point, but we should hold on to him just as he holds on to the pilgrim because we are about to pass into the circles of fraud. We're going to have one intermediate episode here in which I want to look back over all of the circle of violence all the way back to Canto 12 through Canto 17 and do a really down and dirty overview. And then we're about to pass on to fraud. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it. I could use a good comment. I could use a rating. Drop down to the bottom of that Apple menu or the Google Analytics. You'll find out how to do it there. Share the podcast with a friend. You know, I have a couple people who tell me that they are listening to the podcast with others, that they make a little date together, and they, they listen to the podcast during the course of the week, and then they have a Zoom-sipping, wine-sipping moment where they get together and they talk about that week's episodes. Well, that sounds like a pretty fine thing to me. I wish I could do that with you. But the best I can do is say subscribe and stay with me because the eighth circle is ahead. And if the seventh circle has been an imaginative tour de force, we got an ambitious poet. And we got a lot more passages that are beyond these ahead of us. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.